The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. The prophet Amos. So if you'd like to turn there to chapter 3, and we're going to begin reading in verse 11. Chapter 3 and verse 11. You know, I was actually meant to be uh, preaching last week. Gary was going to take this week. Um, And I've got a couple of theories about this. Uh, Either Gary's got some sort of prophetic gift that we don't know about, and he knew LSE were going to get beaten last night, and uh, didn't want to show his face around here, or um, he just didn't want to look at Amos this morning. you, You read this with me, you'll see what I mean. Here's what he says. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun the land. He will put down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd saves from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites be saved, those who sit in Samaria on the edge of their beds and in Damascus on their couches. Hear this and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. Let's, Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for Scripture. We thank you for those parts of Scripture we love and love to quote. And then those other parts of Scriptures we don't quote so much and and don't like so much. But we thank you that through them, you will speak to us and transform us, rearrange our worlds and make us look like Jesus more and more. So, Father, speak to us this morning. In Christ's name we pray this. Amen. So uh, we're in this series, uh, Prophets and Kings, and some of you will have read through the prophets at some point in time. Maybe you've read through them numerous occasions, uh, the minor prophets, the major prophets. For those of you who've read through the prophets, I just want to ask you this question. What did you find most difficult about reading through the prophetic books of the Bible? What was the most difficult thing about reading through the prophets? Because for those of you who've read through them, you'll know that these are not an easy read. I certainly don't find them an easy read. And for those of you who've never read through the prophets, I'd encourage you this week, you know, take a run at it. And you'll soon see what I mean. It's worth playing through, but you'll see what I mean. What, what was the most difficult thing about reading through the prophets? Some people say that one of the most difficult things about reading the prophets is trying to figure out when what the prophet says is going to happen actually happens. You know, all those questions about when is this going to be fulfilled or or has this already been fulfilled? So there's this this beautiful prophecy, for example, right at the end of Amos, and and, uh, it talks about how God is going to establish his people in the land and how they're going to flourish there and how they will never be removed from there again. And, of course, these questions are left hanging in the air again, aren't they? Has, has this already been fulfilled, or has this only been partially fulfilled, or is this something that hasn't even begun to be fulfilled, and this is something new and wonderful that God is still yet to do? This is, uh, this is Hal Lindsey. 
He's the author of The Late Great Planet Earth. Uh, Gary beat up on him a couple of months ago and called him out as a false prophet because, as Gary pointed out, he has uh, made numerous predictions about the future based on this kind of reading of the prophetic books of the Bible. And, and unfortunately, on more than one occasion, on one too many occasions, he has proved to be wrong. Unfortunately, apparently, uh, his ability to read the prophets is about as good as his ability to read women, which is why he's now dumped his third wife and is on to his fourth. But, but you see, none of this seems to have prevented this man from being hugely influential in the evangelical church and bringing this kind of emphasis to the prophets. Look, um, he's not the only one, he's not the first, but over the last few decades, uh, he has influenced the church to read the prophets this way. Then there's other people who say, well, look, this is too complicated. There, there's no way that we're going to be able to line up all those people and events and places right, of history with, with, with these, um, with, with these uh, words of the prophet. Okay? So to, trying to join those dots is too difficult to get it right, correct, accurate. So what we should be doing instead of obsessing about when's this going to be fulfilled and when's that going to be fulfilled, uh, what we need to do is throw away the historical cultural packaging which these prophets come to us in, chuck that away, and, and, we, and we should look for some straightforward application to our lives today. And I think I can tune into that pretty quickly. Can you? I, I can tune into that pretty quickly because, of course, we all want to be better husbands and better wives, and better parents, and we want, we want to be able to make the right decision this week or next month or whenever that big decision is coming up, whatever that is, right? And so I can tune into that pretty quickly. Of course, this is also a very ambitious approach to reading the, the prophets, uh, not an easy thing to do, and sometimes the results can seem a little contrived. Here's what I mean. If the prophets always happen to have something to say about your marriage or about your child rearing, or about uh, your big decision coming up at work this week, or whatever, right? We may want to stop and ask ourselves, are we actually hearing the prophets at all? But, but for right now, I just want to hold those two views, two approaches to reading the prophets in mind. There's two of them, right? The, on the one hand, this approach of looking for prophetic fulfillment. On the, on the other hand, on the other hand, looking for this straightforward application to me here and now. I think there's some validity, some legitimacy to both those approaches. Both those approaches actually uh, share some common ground. They, they both work on the assumption that we are aligned with the prophets and therefore in some sense aligned with God, which I think is a perfectly natural assumption to make considering, look, look at where we're reading the prophets this morning. Where are we reading Amos this morning? We're in church, right? It's not a trick question. In church. In the assembly of God's people, right? And why are we here? We're here to praise him, to sing our songs, to worship him to listen to God's words preached, to, to, to uh, meditate on Scripture, to encourage each other, to fellowship with each other. We're, we're here to bring our tithes and offerings and put them in the offering box. If you haven't done that already, please do it on your way out. I'm, I'm kidding, right? You know we don't pressure you about that stuff around here, right? That's, that's why we don't send the plate around, yeah? But, but here, we're here because in that sense we're, we, want to, we are aligned with the prophets and we're aligned with God. I also read the prophets that way because... Well, in some sense, that's how I read everything. Think about your favorite book, right? Or, or your favorite movie, even. Your, think about your favorite characters. Who are the people you align with and identify with most closely in that book or that movie? Usually, in my favorite books and movies, I identify most closely. I align myself with the protagonist, with the good guy, with the hero. 
I don't always see myself as the hero, but, but I align myself emotionally with the hero, and I'm always glad when the hero shows up right, to save the day. There's a sigh of relief. In some sense, we've been trained to read this way from the time we were children, right? Think, think about the fairy tales you were told as a kid. What were, you, what were your favorite children's stories and fairy tales? Think back then. Again, we weren't really meant to identify and align ourselves too closely with uh, the Wicked Witch, right? Or the Hobgoblin, or uh, Rumpelstiltskin, or whoever. Now, sometimes these, these, these villains kind of held a morbid fascination for us, right? Um, they were meant to for a while, for a moment. But eventually, after a little while of reflecting in that pool, we ally ourselves with the good guy, with, 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 the, with the good, with the righteous, with the just. I read everything this way. And so guess what? This is how I read the prophets as well. And so it comes out like this. I read Amos. And I read that in the times of Amos, we're told, Amos says in chapter 2, I also raised up prophets. This is God speaking. But you commanded the prophets not to prophesy. And I think to myself, how could these people be so spiritually deaf, so spiritually blind, so spiritually hard-hearted and callous that they would silence the prophets, that they'd forbid them to prophesy, that they would stone them, that they'd saw them in two and put them to death. How could they do that? Have you ever had one of those dreams where you, you wake up from the dream and after a little while you realize you haven't actually woken up but you're still dreaming? You ever had that experience? Yeah? A few of you? Have you... Have any of you, a little bit like that movie Inception, did any of you see that a couple of, couple of years ago? Okay, right, so for those of you who didn't see it, there's this, through some sort of super technology, right, these people can go in as a team, as a group of people, into a shared dream. And, and they can, they go in, the movie goes into this dream that's set within a dream, within a dream, within a dream. And so there's these kind of like three or four different layers of, of, of dream, and each one is kind of connected to the, to the other in some intricate way. Um, it's a little bit like those uh, Russian dolls, right? You, 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 know, you know those Russian dolls? When you open one up, what, what happens? What's inside? Another one, yeah. And then you open up another one, and what's inside? Another one, right? And you can keep doing that. There's one doll nested inside another, inside another. So what I'm about to describe for you is, is a little bit like that Russian doll, all those dreams within dreams, okay? You know, sometimes we can show up here on a Sunday, and we, we often read about Jesus and the Pharisees. There's something you need to know about the Pharisees. You know what? They, they longed. They longed for the day of the Lord. They did. They longed for the day of the Lord. And they looked for the Messiah. And they waited for the King to come. And then the day of the Lord comes upon them. And the Messiah is sent to them. And the King shows up at the city gates. And what do they do? Jesus is standing in front of them. And what do they do? With tragic irony, they kill him. They nail him to the cross. And you're left thinking, don't you walk away from that thinking, how could these people be so blind? How could they be so spiritually hard-hearted and callous that they would actually, that they would miss the, they would miss the one that was sent to them and in fact kill the one they'd been looking for? Okay, but let's open up that story because I think inside that story is another story. Sometimes when we read about the Pharisees and Jesus, we, we can read about how the Pharisees were reading about the prophets. So we read about the Pharisees reading about the prophets. They read the prophets. And they read Amos. And you know what they were saying as they read about Amos and the, and the people around Amos? They were saying, how could those people be so blind? How could they be so deaf, so spiritually hard-hearted that they would silence the prophets, that they would saw them in two, that they would stone them to death? 
If we'd been around at that time, there's no way that we would have had the prophet's blood on our hands. In fact, Jesus calls him out on this. Jesus, this is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. He says, and you say, they were saying this, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. But let's open up that story, because I think inside that story, there's another story, right? So we can read about the Pharisees reading about the prophets. And you know, in, as we read, those, those people around the prophets, around the people around Amos, were reading about the great prophet Moses. And you know what the people around Amos were saying as they read about Moses and about how the people of Israel kept turning against Moses and turning their backs on God? Turning against Moses and turning their backs on God. You know what those people around Amos were saying? He was surrounded by people like this. They were saying, how could those people around, around Moses have turned against him and turned their backs on him? If, if we had been around at that time, we would have aligned ourselves with Moses. There's no way we would have turned against him. And, and, and so we read about the Pharisees, reading about the prophets, reading about the prophet Moses, and there's this echo down through the generations, and it says... How could those people be so blind? There's no way we would have done that. And, and you know how the, the, the people in Amos day, you know the, those people surrounding him, you know how they knew that they wouldn't have turned against Moses had they been around in that time? You know how they knew that? Because they went to Bethel. And they went to Gilgal. These are their centers of worship. These are their sacred places. And they assembled thousands of them together, worshiping God, singing songs of praise, bringing their grain offerings, their free will offerings, making their sacrifices. And you know what else we're told? That some of them longed. Some of them longed for the day of the Lord. That's how they knew that they would have aligned themselves with Moses and with God but then God says, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That there will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. And then he goes on to say, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. He starts to cut out the ground from under them. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Go to Bethel. Again, this is their center of worship, their sacred place. Okay, just so you can feel the emotion here. Okay, go to Bethel and sin. Can you, can you feel the shock this would have been to their system? Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Oh, bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. <laughs> you know what the most difficult thing is about reading the, prof the prophetic books of the Bible? It has absolutely nothing to do with trying to figure out when is this going to be fulfilled or how is that going to be fulfilled. Nothing to do with that. The most difficult thing about reading the prophetic books of the Bible has there's nothing to do with trying to squeeze out some sort of application, straightforward application to me here and now. That, that's not the difficult part. The, the difficult part about reading the prophets is having the willingness to submit our world to the world of the prophetic text. To submit our world to the world of the text means to allow the language of the prophet, the metaphors and the, and the uh, symbols that the prophet uses to critique his world, to allow them the same force and power to critique our own world. 
To submit our world to the world of the prophetic text is, is, means more than just applying the text. It's, it's not about just finding some application, something that we can go do. It's not about just pulling out some verses and slapping them on life as we go. To submit our world to the world of the prophetic text means to allow that the word of God, which was meant to be irritating and would have been utterly disruptive if they had let it have its power, to allow the word of God to be just as irritating and utterly disruptive in our society today. To submit our world to the world of the text. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a strange thing, isn't it? When, when you've just been told something like this, like we read earlier, right at the beginning of this message, right? We, we read how the prophet Amos says, it's going to be like this for you. You'll be rescued like a, a shepherd rescues a couple of, from the mouth of a lion, a couple of leg bones and a piece of an ear, right? I mean, this is what, when you're told something like that, you're going to be rescued a couple of leg bones and a piece of ear out of a lion's mouth. When you're told something like that, it seems a really strange question to be asking, um, so when's this going to happen again? I just need to circle it on my calendar because I, you know, I want to make sure I'm in that evening. Don't want to miss that. Right? It seems a little bit of a strange question to be asking. Also, so what's the practical application here? As if this thing could be resolved by a thing or two to do. These hardly seem to be the appropriate first questions or even the appropriate second questions when what the prophet is aiming for is nothing less than to undo his readers. We're meant to be undone by these texts. The prophet is cutting out the ground from under us and he is shattering our own self-perception and our perceptions of God. And yes, while that can be an unnerving experience, to put it mildly, we, if we want to continue to hear the voice of God through the voice of these prophets, we must remain open to that experience of being undone and then undone again with each fresh reading of the text. How do we know we are ready for that? How do we know we are ready for that and open to that kind of critique? How do we know that we would have sat and listened to these prophets for more than five minutes? How do we know, here's the question we should always ask ourselves as we read the prophets, how do we know that we would not have been the one saying to Amos, shut up, be quiet, if you don't, we're going to kill you. How do we know that we're not the ones who would have stoned them, sawn them in two and put them to death? How do we know that? Well, here's a one litmus test. I'm sure you could come up with your own. Here's one. You know how we're often told that we should take a verse of Scripture like uh, you know, John 3, 16, right? And what does it say there? It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And, and we're told that where it says world there, we, we should insert our name. So, so, God, so for me, it would say, God so loved Stephen. God so loved me. You can insert your name. God so loved you. Right? God so loved me. God, he didn't just love me. He didn't just love you. I don't think he especially loved me or especially loved you. But, but if he says he loved the world, it's got to include you and it's got to include me, right? That this is good. So God, God loves us. Another verse that is very popular in terms of uh, personalization is, is, is actually a verse which is addressing an entire nation. But people like to personalize this. It's in Jeremiah. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to bless you and to prosper you and not to harm you. People personalize that one all the time. You know what I don't hear? People don't say, hey, let's personalize this. <laughs> let's personalize Amos. I don't hear that. Can, can you imagine a reading of Amos which went like this? Woe to you, Stephen, as you long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord, Stephen? Do you not know that the day of the Lord is going to be darkness for you and not light, Stephen? 
Well, thankfully, usually the prophet is not usually addressing just individuals. He's addressing nations. You know, they're often addressing Babylon or Assyria. Uh, in this particular case, Israel, sometimes Judah. Could we imagine a reading of Amos where in, instead of reading Israel, we replace that with our own nations? Woe to you, Britain, because. Woe to you, America, because. You know, I actually thought about starting out this morning a little differently without kind of any explanation or lead up. I was, I was just going to get up here and uh, just so we could feel the emotion and the, the emotional charge and, and the tension of what's being said here, right? I was thinking of getting up here and just kind of reading through sections of Amos, different sections. And every time I said Israel, I was, I was just going to read America. And then I remembered actually there's quite a few people with concealed weapons licenses. And I thought, ah, this is... This is not going to go so well for me. You know? But, but you, can, you can feel the tension, right? The emotional charge. You can see how these prophets got killed, right? Because no one messes, no one touches my country, right? You can see how they, they got killed. And so we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves, would we have sat with these people for more than five minutes and listened to them or, or not? Would we have joined in with the condemnation, putting them to death, silencing them, and in doing so silencing the voice of God? Of course, this gets a little bit more personal and closer to home because uh, the, the, the correct equivalent of Israel is not Britain and the correct equivalent of Israel is not uh, America. Uh, the, Israel are God's people. And so the correct equivalent of God's people are what? God's people, right? So, so the correct equivalent of Israel is a church, us. Can, can, can you imagine a reading of uh, Amos that went like this? I hate... I despise your Christmas and Easter celebrations, Temple Bible Church. I cannot stand your Sunday services, TBC. Even though you bring me your tithes and offerings, I will not accept them. Away from me, Temple Bible Church, with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your guitars. No offense intended to the worship team this morning. But by the way, uh, God's not talking about his taste in music there. Okay, for those of you who are like, yeah, no, that's, that's not what he's, he's, he's not talking about his taste in music. Okay, so this, so this is, this is utterly ridiculous, right? I mean, what, who reads the prophets like that? It's utterly ridiculous. We, we know it's ridiculous because we know whose side we're on. We know who we're aligned with, except for the fact that Amos was writing to people who knew, who were utterly convinced, just as convinced as you and I, maybe even more so that they were on God's side. And Amos writes to them, and the first thing he wants them to understand, he says, no, you're not. And so, so we have to be, if, if, if we can remain open to, to, to reading the prophets that way, more, more than five minutes, more than just this morning, but when you come to read the prophets again, if you can remain open to reading the prophets that way, be open to that experience of, of, of the prophets cutting out the ground from under us. If we, if we can remain open to reading the prophets that way, um, we might be able to hear. We might be able to hear the rest of what the prophet has to say. And here is what Amos has to say. He says, they sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. 
There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Again, it says later on that you've done away with the needy. You do away with the needy. You oppress the poor. You've sold the poor for a sandal. This is repeated throughout Amos over and over again. And his concern is not just that the poor and the marginalized, the weak, the defenseless, the widows, the orphans, the fathers. It's not just that there is this growing disparity between the rich and the powerful and the poor and the defenseless and the weak. It's not just that there's this growing disparity. It's where this disparity has grown from. It has grown out of the seedbed of people's greed. And so he addresses those people who are benefiting uh, through their greed. He says, therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. Once again, Israel was failing at the task of being God's people. God's people had been tasked with being agents of justice, agents of righteousness, of light and darkness, in an unjust world to bring justice, in an unrighteous world to exemplify righteousness. And once again, they were failing. This this idea of concern for the poor is not some soft-hearted New Testament thing. Sometimes people read it that way. This is something that was established in the law long ago. The poor, the fatherless, the widow, they're mentioned over and over and over again throughout the law. Here's just a a couple of examples. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. And and, and so the law was always making provision, making some provision for the poor, for the weak, for the defenseless. Follow justice and justice alone. Cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien, the fatherless, or the widow. Over and over again. This is what the Amos was driving at. And interestingly enough, it's the exact same critique that Jesus brings to the Pharisees as well. This is what he says. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. Okay, they were following the law in that sense, just like the people in Amos day. He says, But you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice. Justice. Mercy. Faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You could have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So this is established in the law over and over again. And, and sometimes my initial response to this is, well, I'm okay then. Again, my initial response is to quickly ally myself with the prophet right, and with God. I, I want justice. I like justice. You like justice. I like, ju- I like righteousness. I hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice. I, I do. Uh, But look at the way the prophet describes this. He says, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. I I don't know if my thirst for righteousness and justice is like that exactly. I I think, here's what I think. I think my thirst for justice and righteousness could be quite easily quenched uh, with a few drops of water from a dripping tap. If I could just get my mouth under the faucet, right, we'll, we'll, we'll be good. I'm not sure really what I'd do with these these roaring rivers of justice and and never-ending streams of righteousness. I'd probably be swept away, drowned or something. 
if, if we don't want to think too much about your debt that you've accumulated through credit cards, buying stuff you can't really afford to satisfy your sense of entitlement, so that you now have nothing to give to the poor. Your monthly outgoings are in the thousands of dollars, but the poor and the fight against injustice are getting none of it, not a penny of it. If we don't want to think too much about where your wealth has come from, what you're investing in, how much you've kept for yourself, and how much more you could be giving away. If you, if you want to continue to kid yourself that actually we get to live, it's just through hard work and ingenuity that we just so happen to get to live like this, top 2% of the world. If you, if you want to th- don't want to think too hard about where your stuff comes from, and the stuff you buy uh, that seems to come at such a bargain price, if you don't want to think about what you do with the property you own, the time you have, if you don't want to wrestle with these questions of hospitality and generosity, if you don't want to continually rearrange If we don't want to continually rearrange our lives around these themes of justice and righteousness, then we need to make sure that that river and stream of justice and righteousness is dammed up. And quit reading the prophets. Or if you read them, make sure you domesticate them and tame them with questions like, so what's the application here? What's the thing I can do to resolve all? Well, well, tame it. Make sure that you you domesticate these texts by by asking questions like, so uh, when's this going to happen here again? I just want to circle it on the calendar. I just want to be clear that uh, it's not my doing thing, doing these things, this fight against injustice, the giving to the poor, sacrificially um, caring, f- fighting for the, the, the marginalized, the weak, the oppressed. It's not by doing these things that we become God's people. It's just that these are the marks of what we, we are. We, God's people are God's people because of God's grace is choosing, right? God's people are God's people because he has made a covenant with his people and it's a covenant that he is faithful to. God's people are God's people because of the final and complete work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's not that these things make us God's people, but they are the marks. This is what God's people look like. And if, and if there is no, if, if there's none of this, if our lives are not arranged around justice, around right, our lives arranged around it, our time, our money, our energy, if our lives are not arranged around these things, then we have some serious questions to ask if these are not the marks of our lives. Look, Jesus puts it this way, and I'm just going to end here with, with Christ's own words. Jesus says that one day he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And he says, then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. 
Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And well, perhaps there were some people in the crowd that day who on hearing Jesus' words said, um, So when's this going to happen again? I just want to circle this on my calendar. Let's come before God in prayer. So Father, I admit that I'm the first to have been domesticating and taming these texts by asking questions about when's it going to happen or whatever. Father, I pray for all of us here this morning that we would cease doing that that we would be willing to submit our world to the world of the prophetic text. Allow your words to have their power in our lives, in our church, in our city, in our nation. This world of, full of injustice, full of poverty and impoverishment. Father, that we would fulfill our role as God's people, being agents of justice, bringers of life and righteousness. Father, give us a thirst for justice and righteousness, the kind of thirst that will not be quenched or satisfied by a few drops out of a dripping tap, so that we can honestly pray with the prophet that justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Give us that kind of thirst, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And we're dismissed.